Women of War is written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to vomiting, murder, piracy and religious persecution. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. We also recorded this episode over Zoom during the fourth Melbourne lockdown. Thanks, Scott Morrison. We would like to apologise in advance for any audio issues. Jigvich, I'm Nicola, and this week it is both the centenary and a bit of the Battle of Messines in World War One, and the 77th anniversary of the Normandy landings, better known as D-Day. I just wanted to put that in there because we are a podcast about military history as well as a podcast about women. The Battle of Messines is famous for massive bombs, and D-Day is famous for being the setting of the TV show Band of Brothers. I'm Hannah. Um, I'm slightly offended that you think you need to like put in that this is a military history podcast. What are you implying about the content of this episode? Not sure. Rude. <laughs> anyway, I think I would make an excellent pirate. Um, except I get terribly seasick without drugs, so that's a bad plan and it's not going to work. And have I ever told you about the time I threw up over the side of a sea kayak on a dolphin watching tour with a poor random British uh, behind me? No. Do I want to hear it? It's fine. It's literally all it's, right. Tell that's me. That's what happened. I was. It was when I was backpacking, and then I was in Byron Bay. And I got on a sea kayak and I didn't know anybody. And this random British dude was there with me and I was behind him and we're sea kayaking. And then I'm like, oh shit, I get seasick and I need to throw up. And there's beautiful dolphins over there, but I'm trying to throw up over the side of a kayak. And do you know how hard it is to throw up over the side of a kayak without tipping yourself over into the water? Oh, and you end up in your own spew as well. It's a lot. It's a lot. Oh, that poor man. I know. I bet he has this. And now you're married. That's lovely. Terrible story. If you're listening, random <laughs> British dude, I've forgotten your name. I apologise. He's probably called like Paul or Simon. Probably. Anyway, he's not a beetle. Mm, I don't so, know. Now we've proved I'd be a terrible pirate. We should probably tell the listeners why we're on about pirates and ships today. So yeah, this is Women of War, the podcast where we remember that about fifty percent of the population also had stuff to do during wars and battles throughout history, and often it wasn't just nursing or sex work, even though those are both totally valid like occupations to have during wartime. Today we're going to sail the seven seas with Irish pirate queen Grania, Grania or Grace O'Malley. So this is this the first time we've done a pirate? I think so. I don't think we've done a pirate before. So two two apologies in advance to our Irish listeners. Um. First, we have done our best to get our pronunciations right, but the Irish blood in my veins is now but a tiny drop in a sea of British white breadness. Uh, and two, <laughs> Nicola will attempt Irish accents. I cannot guarantee how successful they will be. So give her I'm the same rude. support and enthusiasm you would for a puppy learning a new trick. I, well, considering my own dog is very poorly trained. All right. Now, before we get to Grania herself, let's have a quick carriage ride past early Irish history. It's pretty straightforward. Nothing too confusing happens, particularly not in the 16th century where we're headed today. We could go back to the beginning of Irish history, but Hannah decided she did need to sleep at some point, rather than trying to plot out the entirety of Irish history from when humans first arrived on the island around 10,500 BCE until 2020 ACE, when a Northern Irish woman became the first person in the world to be given the COVID jab outside clinical trials. I like that you gave me the one on vaccines because you know I like vaccines. I do know you like vaccines. So let's start instead in the 12th century. So at this point, Ireland had spent a bit of time being Christian, 
a bit of time dealing with snakes and a hungry snake whisperer named St. Patrick, and a bit of time dealing with rampaging Vikings with really nice hair. At the beginning of the 1100s, the Christians were firmly planted, and some of the Vikings had thrown down some roots as well. And everyone was split quite happily into small kingdoms united under a high king, very Lord of the Rings. So in uh, 1169 CE, in this idyllic paradise, nice. there, there were still wars between different kingdoms. In this idyllic paradise, the Normans arrived. Actually, no, you're right. Those wars are important because it was an exiled Irish king, Dermot McMurrah, who invited the Normans in so he could regain his kingdom. Dumb move, Dermot. The Normans had already invaded Britain and decided it would be quite nice to have a bit of Ireland too. Thank you very much. As with most of history, once the rules of Britain show up anywhere that wasn't Britain, it's not great for the people already living there. <laughs> the King of England at the time, Henry II, was a bit wary of the Norman forces supporting Dermot, in case they decided to set up shop as their own rival Norman state, a jump, skip and a throwaway from jolly old England. Pope Alexander III, the only English Pope in history, which is very unsurprising, issued a papal bull in 1155, giving Henry II permission to invade Ireland if he thought there was corruption within the church. And then Hannah's written, Nicola, I am giving you this line because I trust your ability to control yourself. And I'm going to say, I'm so glad there is no longer any corruption in the Irish Catholic Church or the Australian Catholic Church. Henry finally followed. There's a, there's a priest outside my blanket fort with a gun just to my head. <laughs> like, to be sure, don't you dare see nothing. Henry um, finally followed through with the papal bull in 1171 when he took a fleet to Ireland. Don't know why he didn't just get the ferry. And he named his son John the Lord of Ireland and signed the Treaty of Windsor in 1175 with the Irish king, Radri O'Connor, which he's been anglicised as Roderick O'Connor. Also, Dermot's dead, by the way, at this point. I, I miss you, Paul McDermott. Anyway, the treaty did fall, and soon every Norman with an inferiority complex was invading to grab a lovely little second home for themselves. Gentrification has a long history, folks. This is really the beginning of colonising Ireland, like the pre-colonisation phase, but kind of colonising, with the Normans making permanent changes like bringing in their own tenants and introducing feudalism and proto-capitalism rather than the existing barter system. See, I told you it was an idyllic paradise. Bring back barter system. Yeah. Between the late 1100s and the early 1300s, Ireland was under varying levels of rule from the Normans. King John, Henry II's son, was still the Lord of Ireland and managed to convince many Irish kings to support him. Okay, so side note here, based on my possibly very incorrect understanding of the differences between the Normans and the English, uh, any medieval out there hit me up, tell me what I've got wrong. So in this episode, Medievalists hit really hard, so just be careful, okay? I can take it, it's fine. So in this episode, we discuss the Normans who came to Ireland from England, plus the English. So it would make sense that these are one and the same, but they're not. This gets very complicated and includes many family trees. But if I've read the BBC website correctly, the Normans are the Normans and the English are the Anglo-Saxons. Sometimes the Normans and the English are the same when a Norman king is on the throne, but sometimes they're different. When they're being very Norman, we'll call them Normans, and when they're being very English, we'll call them the English. You got it? Me neither. Okay. The Normans also established slash imposed the Parliament of Ireland in 1297. In 1315, Edward Bruce of Scotland invaded and rallied the Irish lords against the English presence, and though they were eventually defeated, local Irish did manage to take back some of their lands that had been taken in the previous conquests by the Normans and the English. The current English king, Edward I, was more concerned with what was happening in other parts of his kingdom, and so didn't give the Norman lords the support they needed to hold the land. English or, and or also, Norman control of Ireland continued to wane over the 14th century. 
Many Normans who had moved to Ireland began to ad adopt Irish customs and names and renounced their allegiance to the English crown. To English, the Hundred Years' War was kicking off around now, plus the plague was doing its thing, and the European famine gave us Irish a taste of what would happen with their potatoes in the future, so there's just a lot happening. So now we get to the 1530s, when Branya was born. This was a period in which English control of Ireland was weak, and everyday Irish people were largely unaffected by the English politics. There were around 60 counties ruled by chieftains, and they held no allegiance to the English. In England itself, Henry VIII is running around marrying and beheading women left, right and centre, divorcing the Pope and creating his own religion. So this is the world Branya was born into. So, archives, if you haven't twigged by now, are incredibly biased towards one type of history, the rich and the powerful. And in the vast majority of cases, rich and powerful white men. The further back in time you go, the harder it is to find the words of women. In some cases, women weren't literate and so could not write down their stories. The history profession is slowly learning how to incorporate oral traditions as historical sources, but this is still far from the mainstream. In other cases, their stories were not preserved because their writings were deemed less important. On top of this, the histories that get told and preserved are at the whim of political tides. This is particularly evident in the history of Branya O'Malley. For generations, Irish historians neglected to give much time to Grania. Irish historical tradition had, until the late 20th century, been focused on particular stories of national heroes and Grania did not fit that mould. She was a woman, rarely a good thing if you're being considered for national hero status. She was, in the words of a contemporary, a woman who overstepped the part of womanhood, i.e. she became a chieftain less concerned with tending the home fires and more concerned with sailing the seven seas. Seafaring also put her in close contact with the rough men who often worked on ships. So early Irish histories often left Grania out. The Annals of the Four Masters, an influential Irish history written just after Grania died, did not mention her name, even though the compilers of the history had access to people who would have remembered her. As a result of this, much of the information we have on Grania comes from his English sources, which, particularly at the stage of tension between England and Ireland, would have had their own biases when discussing Irish figures. Luckily, we do also have her words preserved in letters she wrote in later life. But as you will see, these two were written for a particular purpose. Grace O'Malley, which is what the English often call her, or Grania Niwalia, was born around 1530 Common Era, post-Common Era in West Ireland, around County Mayo today. She was born into the Nelwalia clan, the only daughter of Margaret and Owen Dubdara O'Malley who could trace their lineage back to Brian Orbson, the High King of Ireland, until his death in 388 CE. Her father had inherited the role of chieftain of the Kingdom of Umhall on the west coast of Ireland. By the time of Grania's birth, the O'Malleys were the only Gaelic chieftains in Mayo who were able to retain their independence and rank. Ireland was run largely under Brehon law at this point, a distinctly Gaelic legal system. Society was made up of clans, which were extended family groupings under a chieftain. The chieftain was an elected position chosen by members of the ruling family. The position was, however, always passed to a male relative. A chieftain gained their power through a system of clientship, i.e. he had sublords under him, who paid tribute annually and committed men to assist the chieftain in times of war. I think we're going for a British-Australian today. Yeah, I, was just I, think say, I feel like your Irish accent is the equivalent of the good place Australian accent. <laughs> no, no offence, yeah. but full offence. I'm not sure what's going no on. No offense, no offense. That's it. Yeah. It's the lack of oxygen under this blanket. That's fair. We'll, we'll, we'll blame that. That's fine. So, being so close to the coast, the O'Malley's were a seafaring family, which, considering Ireland is an island, is actually rarer than you'd think. Their clan motto is Terra Marique Potens, or Powerful by Land and Sea. 
I wish I had a family motto. I do have a crest, which is hilariously a bunch of grapes because um, I thought that was a joke, but no, it's true. Unlike most Irish clans who made their living primarily on land, the O'Malley's made their living primarily on the sea through fishing and trade, and often in a bit of piracy to supplement their legal income. They controlled castles up and down the coast as well as Clue Bay. Clue Bay was a particularly effective stronghold for the O'Malley's, being inaccessible to anyone without a local knowledge of the area. Dubdara was in charge of the largest fleet in Ireland, and their services were often in demand by local chieftains wanting an advantage in a war with another clan. The references to the O'Malley's in historical sources show their reputation as powerful seafarers. They even traded, or plundered, as far as Scotland and Spain, an idea which comes from a poem from the 15th century, which, while it does not rhyme in English, does paint a vivid picture of the family. They are lions of the green sea, men acquainted with the land of Spain. When seizing cattle from Cantaya, a mile by sea is a short distance to the O'Malley's. Wow, that slaps. That goes Does off. not slap in English, but still, <laughs> good imagery. Seafaring was a hard life. This is not a balmy tropical paradise with winter waves and snorkeling tourists. The western coast of Ireland faces the North Atlantic Ocean. The land is rough and rugged with massive cliffs and inhospitable harbours. The weather is often dramatic, which is great if you're curled up in a nice warm room watching through strong windows, but not so great if you're on a ship at the whim of the winds and tides. Added to the natural difficulties, this is the 1500s when there are no radars or other helpful tech. I love that you went for radar, which hasn't even existed for a hundred years as something that was... Anyway, maps are somewhat limited. Ireland wasn't really properly mapped until the end of the 16th century. Your ship is made of wood and there are pirates, ahoy, you have other things to do. But on the flip side for the O'Malley's, being experienced navigators of such difficulties gave them an advantage, making them able to escape attacks on land by sea, as well as giving them access to trade in far off places that were inaccessible to their land-bound neighbours. This was particularly important considering that trade in Western Ireland was centred around Galway, which was subject to laws which prohibited clans outside the city walls trading in the city. Therefore, the O'Malley's ability to trade via alternative sea routes was vital. It gave them access to a greater variety of markets, which meant more people to sell to and more people to buy exotic products from. It also meant exposure to different ways of life. By the time Grania was born, the O'Malley's had a reputation as formidable pirates who were, quote, much feared everywhere by sea, end quote. Grania grew up at Belclare Castle, a stone fortress that was the seat of the O'Malley chieftain. It would not have been a comfortable place to live, as it was built for defence rather than luxury. For sons of the chieftain, childhood was a series of lessons in weapons, horse riding, and raiding to prove they were strong leaders who should be elected as the next chieftain. Still better leaders than Scott Morrison. Always. We don't really have any information on Grania's childhood. She appears to have received some degree of formal education, possibly from the friars who lived on O'Malley land. We do know, based on her later life, that she must have spent time learning the skills of seafaring. Grania probably accompanied her father on voyages and learned her trade from him. One anecdote recounts that when Branya asked to join her father on a seafaring expedition and was rejected on the grounds that her long hair would get caught in the ship's ropes, she cut off her hair and forced her father to take her with him. While Branya was growing up, Henry VIII, so the famous one, began to turn his attention to Ireland. In 1534, the 10th Earl of Kildare, Thomas Fitzgerald, revolted against Henry because Henry had executed Fitzgerald's dad and planned to come after Thomas himself. His revolt became the Kildare Rebellion, which failed and is not particularly relevant here. 
The relevant bit is that Thomas's revolt brought Ireland's running to the attention of Henry, who decided it needed a bit of a shake up, or rather, a shake down. <laughs> he redesignated Ireland as the Kingdom of Ireland in 1541, named himself King of Ireland rather than Lord of Ireland, as English kings have been doing, and he re- introduced the policy of surrender and regrant. This policy aimed to remove kinship and clan ties from the Irish ruling system and instead introduced a feudal system based on English law. Irish chieftains were encouraged to surrender their lands to the king, who would then re-grant the lands back to the chieftains to charge rent off their tenants in return for swearing loyalty to Henry. The chieftains who did so had to follow English law but would receive a title. Many took him up on his, air quotes, offer because either they felt they had no choice or because they wanted more money or because they'd become disillusioned with the prevailing ruling system. By the time Henry died in 1547, much of Ireland had come more directly under English control. So, this had not made its way to the O'Malley lands. However, by the time Grania was 16, around 1546, the O'Malley's were able to trade further afield and were therefore less reliant on local markets and could afford to take a step back from such political manoeuvring. There was, however, one political manoeuvring that Dubdara was inclined to participate in marrying his daughter off for political rewards. When Grania was 16, she was married to Donald O'Farty, the son of the chieftain of the Ballinahinch clan, neighbours to the O'Malley's. Donald had been chosen as the eventual successor to his father, and so this marriage would link the O'Malley's to the ruler of the O'Flaherty lands that comprised most of modern-day Connemara. So I did try and find out how large that is, but the Connemara is also a breed of horse. So the answer I got to how big is Connemara was 50 to 58 inches high, which seems quite a small piece of land worth bargaining your daughter for. Upon her marriage, Grania moved to Bunowen Castle, an hour and 22 minute drive from her previous home at Belclair. Being the 1500s, however, this trip would have taken a bit longer and so teenage Grania was isolated from her family. No longer having adventures on the sea, Grania would have been expected to manage household affairs and birth ales for Donald. The O'Flaherty clan had a bit of a reputation as warmongers, and folklore suggests that the walls of Galway town were inscribed with From the Ferocious O'Flaherty's or Lord Deliver Us, which may or may not be true, but definitely gives a sense of how the clan is remembered. Donald, Grania's new husband, went by the nickname of Donald of the Battles, suggesting he was very much in favour of his clan's reputation and someone unlikely to welcome any partner who would want to share power. Grania did what was expected and gave birth to two sons and a daughter, Owen, Mara and Margaret. Well, Grania, I, I want to stop you right there. I want to stop you right there because I looked up Murrow to see how it was pronounced because it's um, Muraka. But I find this really interesting. Owen means young warrior. Muraka means sea battler or sea warrior, which is pretty cool. And Margaret means pearl. Aww. So like there's like ocean themed names of the latter two of them, which I, I like thought was that. really That's interesting. Fun. Yeah. Well, just, just um, grind your on babynames.com in 1547. <laughs> like. Need seafaring games. Got to continue the legacy. Ah, uh, Ariel. Wait, that movie hasn't come out yet. <laughs> okay, so while Grania was busy getting down to business, Donald got involved in murder. <laughs> in 1549, Walter Father Burke was murdered at the Oflatius Castle of Inverness. Burke was the son of a local lord, and it was allegedly Donald's sister Finola who urged her brother to kill Burke so that her son would replace Burke as the heir to the lordship. Okay, now pause on the murder for a hot sec. While Donald was running around trying to prove he was the manliest man to ever man, getting into murder plots and feuds with his neighbours, Branya was unable to sit by and let the O'Flaherty clan be run by a twat. Oral tradition records that Grania essentially took over the managing of the clan, 
despite Gaelic law forbidding women from holding such positions. Despite this law, Grainne was evidently not only accepted as the clan leader, but was so well respected that many of Donald's clansmen would later follow Grainne when she left for Owen. I'm sure there were other cases of like male leaders of clans being tits and like their wives taking over. Just like in- I'm sure there was, but we don't have them in the historical record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before she left, Bonowen was the perfect place to take up seafaring again. Reports suggested it was while living here that Grania began to live life as a commander of ships and perhaps even pirating. Bonowen Bay, the site of the castle, sits on an inlet sheltered by a small bit of land from the wilds of the North Atlantic. Though still a dangerous passage through shoals and rocks, the bay is largely protected from winds from the north, east and west, and the passage to the beach itself is apparently straightforward if you know the right route. It was a good place then to tip her toes back into the water. It's kind of like um the Port Phillip Bay down here. Yeah. Yeah. You know I think Port Bay, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't know much about the uh topography of Port Phillip Bay, to be fair. Well, you're not you're not a ship pilot, you don't have to get through. I'm not, I'm not a captain, as aforementioned, terrible seasickness. Nah. So as we said earlier, Galway was not the greatest fans of the O'Flannities, making trade in the city difficult, due particularly to taxes imposed on plants. So Grania began using her ships to charge taxes of her own. Grania and the ships under her command would accost merchant ships heading to Galway and would only provide safe passage into the city if the merchants paid a toll or surrendered some of their cargo. So things were going great until Queen Elizabeth rocked up. Lizzie initially followed her dad's policy of surrender and regrant, continuing to try and entice nobles to, la- to Ireland to support her. There was some pushback against this, and sometimes Elizabeth had to resort to military methods. In 1564, Murrow of the Battle Axes, a minor chieftain in the O'Flaherty clan, got too big for his boots. He decided to launch a campaign to get more power and began by attacking an English lord, the Earl of Clanricard. You'd think this would be a terrible move, as the English could not ignore such a blatant affront against English peerage. You'd be wrong. Elizabeth calculated that it would be too costly to take on Murrow in open warfare, as he had a strong force and the home court advantage. But if she could convince him to support her and the English monarchy, then that might actually help her cause in Ireland and convince more chieftains to pledge loyalty to her. So Elizabeth pardoned Murrow for his attack on the Earl and actually rewarded him by declaring he was the lord of all Yara Connacht. Yarkonacht, the area which roughly comprises modern-day Connemara, i.e. the land of the Oflatis, a clan that Murrow was only a bit player in, the clan that Grania's husband Donald was the heir to. That clan, that land. Wow, the English, like, taking someone's land and giving it to the wrong people? Amazing. I'm shocked. Yep. So basically, Queen Elizabeth took Brehon Law and she just threw it in the bin. She overthrew an elected official for her own gains. Very on-brand for the English. This was a policy that she would use again while trying to get Ireland back under English control. It undermined Gaelic laws and traditions in favour of English law and set previously allied clans against each other in an all-out war for more power and influence. So this obviously impacted the legally elected heir to Air Connacht, Mr Grania O'Malley. And Grania watched the situation unfold, knowing that only a strong leader would be able to counteract the influence of the English. As you might have picked up, that strong leader was not Donald. Donald actually got murdered himself, karma realising that he was a largely useless lump. Not to victim blame. He was killed in 1565 by a neighbouring clan, the Joyces. All right, so you want a fun little fact about this story? I do. I'm excited for the white text. All right, close your eyes. Okay. When Donald took the castle from the Joyces, he was, unsurprisingly from the little I know about him, a bit of a dick. He rubbed it in their faces and went 
around all puffed up like a rooster, so the Joseph's nicknamed him Donald the Cock. <laughs> when, when they killed him, they renamed the castle Cock's Castle in celebration of his defeat. But they forgot about Grunya, who defended the castle with Donald's men so skillfully that in the end it was actually named Hen's Castle in her honour, and that's the name that it carries today. I love that! That's so good! I enjoy that so much. So even though Grania successfully defended the castle, the English also came for it, and soon Grania and her followers were under siege. As we have mentioned before, sieges are generally shit. It's no fun being stuck inside your house for long periods, and even less fun when you've run out of food and are being bombed all the time. Cannon? Bombed. Is that a word? Bombarded? Bombarded. Yeah. As we all know, however, Grania was not one to give up lightly, and so she casually ordered her troops to take off the castle's lead roof, melt it down, and pour it onto the English banging on the front door which I would like to do with unexpected guests, but that's now frowned upon. The English retreated to a less boiling metal on my head distance. Grania sent a man to light a beacon for aid. The beacons of ministerial <laughs> Gondor called for aid. Aragorn pushed open the doors very sexily and reinforcements arrived to send the English packing. The siege was lifted. But although Grania had just thoroughly proven she could handle anything thrown at her and successfully lead her people, Brayon Law still prohibited women from being recognised as chieftains. So even though she had been acting as unofficial chieftain, even before Donald got himself murdered, Donald's cousin was elected as a new chieftain of the Oflactory clans. So Grania went fuck this for a bag of chips and went back to the O'Malley castle at Clare Island. Proving that those who had elected Donald's cousin were dumb, Grania also took a whole bunch of loyal Flachty men with her, men who had served under her in the siege and knew a good leader when they saw one. It was from her base on Clare Island, supported by these men and her sh- and ships she got from her father, that Grania truly began life as a pirate. Pirates are just so cool. I know they're not, but they are. Okay, so, Grania later described her piracy as, quote, maintenance by land and sea, end quote, which is a very polite and euphemistic way of saying, as a woman in 16th century Ireland, I have very little power or ways to make an honest living, but I'm really great at sailing, so bring on the rum. <laughs> or more, bring on the risky, as rum wasn't really a thing until the next century and would make its way into pirate legend from the mid-1600s, when the British Navy began using rum for its liquor rations after capturing Jamaica. Whiskey, however, was going gangbusters in Ireland and was exported from the 1570s. Was Grania exporting whiskey as well? No, no, no. I just think it's neat. I'm going to fucking stop this recording now. How dare you do I'm fully intended. Thank you. I'm here all week. So Grania had few options for supporting herself. As a widow, she had very few rights and she didn't have any way to make money. So she returned to her father's lands and I'm in the 1560s. Dabdara was still chieftain of the O'Malley's and so Grania had some measure of security there. Grania was also the only heir to her mother's land, so again, it made sense to live near her family. As we mentioned earlier, the O'Malley lands were also prime pirate real estate. Clare Ireland sits at the mouth of Clue Bay, a harsh and inaccessible bay unless you have local knowledge of the area. On Clare Island, Grania lived in a tower castle which gave her 360 degree views around the bay, making it nearly impossible to sneak into Clue without someone in the tower seeing and raising the alarm. So we don't know exactly what Grania did when she first resettled at Clare. Though it seems that she got straight into piracy to take care of herself and her people. She began to build up a reputation as both a leader and a supporter of rebellion against the English. Based on sources written in the 1590s, it's also possible Grania was acting as an independent chieftain as early as the 1550s and possibly achieved this status through open warfare with other clans. During the 1560s and 1570s, Grania also consolidated her status as a pirate by accosting ships off the western coast of Ireland. She did all this with the help of a 200-man-strong army. 
Alongside the O'Flaherty men that had followed her to Clare Island and O'Malley men, Granu also had men from the Burke, McCormack, McNally, McConroy and Clandonald clans. Now, 200 men may not sound that much, but consider the fact that these men came from clans that historically were constantly at war with each other. Donald had supposedly murdered a Burke, so it is impressive that these disparate groups united under Grania. More impressive, these men abandoned their own clans to join her. And most impressive, these men accepted Grania, a woman, as their leader, despite social and cultural customs teaching them that women could not be chieftains or wield any similar power. However, I did wonder about this from the episode about um, Nakano Jekeko yep. and the Joshua Dai. I looked up um, all the gods of Ireland, like Celtic lore and stuff, and there's a lot of strong female, um, like, goddesses. I'm wondering if that might also be a kind of precedent for them. Like, oh, she's just like Morgana or whatever. I don't know if Morgana counts. I actually, I never went through a phase of, like, mythology with Ireland. I did the, I was a Greek god kid, like, I got into I didn't get into much mythology at all, actually. Yeah. Uh, I had a couple of friends I think- loved Celtic mythology. And I was like, there's like 4,000 gods. Because every clan, there was like a group, there was like a pantheon everyone understood to exist. And then every clan had like a dozen of their own. So yeah. it was just like so many. I think the okay. thing with like the mythology stuff is that like you've got like, and Grace kind of ends up, you know, Granu kind of ends up with this status of like unique figures like so occasionally you'll have a woman who's so mm. unique that she can lead but the rest of women aren't suited to it so it's kind of like this this idea that you know this woman there's something different about her and yeah. so she is special and so she can lead and so like the goddesses and like you know Boudicca or whatever will like have that kind of status mm. But other women, no, they don't know what they're doing. They're not supposed to do it. They're like, oh yeah, I, I'm just wondering if it's sort of like the she's like this goddess, maybe like she's special, and like that's yeah. one of the lenses yeah. through which they could understand her. That um, could make sense. Leading, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think also there's like this idea that they've seen her in action. Yeah. So like, so this is going on to my next point, but like Branya's active leadership style would have gone a long way in like helping to earn loyalty. Yeah. So she didn't just order her men about from her secure castle, but she was always right there among the action, both on ships and land. Um, and so her men trusted her to lead them into any situation and get them out again. And so would follow wherever Granya ordered. And the respect they gave her went both ways. Granya is purported to have said that she would prefer a ship of her men to a ship full of gold, which I think I'd prefer the gold to be. I would prefer the gold. There is an element of not like other girls to this part of Granya's story. Biographies of Grania suggest that part of her ability to earn the trust of her men was that she was free from the modesty and female insecurities of other women of her time and so could fit in with the men more easily. Grania had at least one traditionally masculine hobby, gambling, and sources suggest that she swore, appropriately like a sailor, and was sexually liberated, shall we say, and took as many lovers to her bed as any male pirate captain would. Anyway, whatever the situation, there's no doubt that she did inspire men to follow her. When her father died, Grania took command of most of his fleet and even acted, at least for a period, as the official chieftain of the O'Malley's. Grania already controlled Clue Bay, and with other O'Malley strongholds along the coast under her command, she essentially controlled a significant portion of the Irish West Coast. No ships attempting to sail the coast were safe from Grania's fleet. You weren't safe on land either. <laughs> there are numerous accounts of Grania attacking and seizing castles along the coast, and her wealth and her fame continued to grow. One particular legend stands out in the historical record and shows exactly what kind of woman Grania was. One day, a ship washed up near Ackle Head on the neighbouring island. 
Grania took her men through a gale to the ship to see if there was anything there worth salvaging. There was a hottie. Grania found Hugh DeLacy in the wreckage of the ship. I'm picturing Hugh Dancy. Yeah, I was too when I wrote this. Yeah. Hugh was the son of a wealthy merchant from England and he and Grania fell in love. Or lust. But mythical legends tend to call it love. Their lusty love didn't get a chance to see if it could last, however. One day, Hugh was deer hunting on Ackle Island when he was killed by the McMahons. Why? I cannot tell you. Ackle Island was on O'Malley territory, so it can't have been that he was hunting on McMahon land. Maybe an accident. I don't know. Maybe he's a furry and four-legged tattoos and the son called Bambi and they were just hunting themselves. Well, anyway, Hugh was dead at the hands of the McMahons, possibly some relation to Danny Minogue's ex-father-in-law. Grania was apparently devastated and decided to avenge her love. Not long afterwards, the McMahons sailed past Clare Island on their way to Carr Island for pilgrimage. Now, not a victim blame here, but Carr <laughs> Island is only about nine kilometres south of Clare. Grania, in her high tower castle on Clare, could easily see what was going on down there and could see when the McMahons landed on Carr. While the McMahons were paying homage to St. Patrick, thanking them for their safe journey, probably, Grania and her fleet sailed down and captured the McMahon vessels, leaving them stranded on the island and unable to escape her wrath. So paying homage to St. Patrick didn't really work out then. It did not Still, though, she thought were responsible for Hugh's death and then decided for good measure to sail to the McMahon's castle, where Grania and her men overpowered the remaining McMahons and claimed the castle for Grania. Which is perhaps a bit of overkill for the death of a guy you don't know for that long, but hey, he looked like Hugh Dancy. He looked like Hugh Dancy. And also, I do wonder if this is like a pretext, like either from Grania herself or maybe later historians, like storytellers, like maybe she wanted the castle and needed a reason to justify it, or maybe later writers struggled with her just taking someone else's castle because she wanted it. And they wanted to give her like a so-called noble reason to make it okay, or perhaps even a reason that like fit in with a particular image of heroic woman, like driven by love rather than masculine greed. That's actually a really, really good point. It could even be a way of paralleling her with, like, I don't know, like Greek heroes like Helen of Troy and all that as well. It's a very mythologized, like, even, like, you know, she found him in the wreckage and they fell in love. I'm like, I I feel like you need to talk first. Like, that only works in The Little Mermaid. So I think there's, there's more going on to this story, and I just find that really interesting. So another legend of Grania during this time is similarly intriguing about her true motivations. So the story goes that one day Grania was sailing home from a voyage, possibly pirating movies, when she stopped at House Castle for provisions on the last leg of her journey. Grania expected hospitality and a warm welcome from St Lawrence, the lord of the castle. As a chieftain, she was entitled to this under Gaelic custom. But Lawrence was English and so did not adhere to such customs. He had the gates locked and a servant informed Grania that Master was dining and was not at home to visit him. Grania was offended at the rudeness and stormed back to her ship, conveniently running into St. Lawrence's grandson on the beach. So she abducted him and took the grandson back to Clare Island. St. Lawrence followed, wanting his grandson, who was also his heir, back. <laughs> he expected that Grania would demand gold and riches, but instead she demanded that he pinky promise to follow Gaelic hospitality customs in future and would never turn away those seeking help. St. Lawrence obviously agreed and was able to take his grandson home with him to house. Now, obviously, this could be the case, but I do also see this story as perhaps, like, reinforcing Grania's patriotism to Gaelic law. Like, oh, she didn't do it for selfish reasons. She was doing it to make sure that our customs are respected by English usurpers. Yeah, probably. It's, like, a form of propaganda. Like, yeah, exactly. you know, like Grania O'Malley, like, still, that's Scottish. Um, Like, 
act like Grania, like be a pirate, do what you want, but like make sure you do it in the correct Gaelic manner. And I'm sure hope she keeps doing things in the correct Gaelic manner for the rest of her life. Anyway, in yep. 1566, apparently over the loss of Hugh Dancy, <laughs> Grania, now in her mid-30s, married Richard Burke, a chieftain of the Olic of Barishul and Karasept, or family. So um, he was also famous for his part on Friends as Monica's serious boyfriend, who was also he was not. He was not. Historians believe that this marriage was a calculated move on Grania's part, as Richard not only had a very strategically positioned castle, is that what they call it these days, but also some helpful sheltered harbours for her fleet. Burke was elected as the heir to the chieftain, his title was actually the McWilliam, and he was a skilled fighter and strategist in his own right. In a very daytime television twist, Richard was the stepbrother of Walter Burke, the guy that Grania's first husband, Donald, had murdered. Richard and Grania married on a trial basis, which is very sensible and was very common among Gaelic nobility in this period. Both parties agree to be married for a year and can either withdraw after that time, no hard feelings or prenup needed, or stay together. So in very typical Grania fashion, she agreed to the trial marriage, moved into Richard's castle with her men. Then when the year is up, she locked Richard out and called down for the battlements of his castle. Richard Burke, I dismiss you. No take backs! I love it. <laughs> But it's okay, because in more daytime television, they were on again, off again, until Burke died 20 years later. <laughs> in 1567, they had a son, Tibbet Nelong, who folklore tells was born while Branya was on her ship. Branya gave birth and was only a day into post-birth recovery when her ship was attacked by Barbary pirates, and Branya went above deck to lead her men to victory. <laughs> hope she didn't prolapse anything. All right. <laughs> Around the time of Tibbet Nelong's birth is about when the English really stepped in to micromanage the land, and by micromanage we mean colonise. Ireland holds the unwanted distinction of being England's first colony. Not an award you want, really. No, no. Much in the same way that things had happened with her dad, Elizabeth I had mostly left Ireland to care for itself until the situation was brought to the front of her mind with some casual warfare. In 1565, the Earl of Desmond and the Earl of Ormond followed in their family's tradition of feuding with each other and waged war over a piece of land. This would be the Battle of Fame. Again, the intricacies of this battle are unimportant here. What is important is that this private battle enraged Elizabeth because it undermined her claim to be the ultimate ruler of Ireland. In fact, this was the last private battle in England or Ireland. So Lizzie decided it was time to really bring Ireland to heel. And so England decided the easiest and cheapest way to do this was to colonise their neighbours. English governors were sent in to manage Irish provinces. The first was Sir Edward Fitton, who was sent to Connaught, and Sir John Perrett, who was sent to Munster. Both set up as ruling authorities who worked to undermine the authority of Gaelic or Brihon law. The Irish didn't just take the city down, however, and many rebelled over the course of several years. In 1574, the English decided to divide Mayo up into ten baronies, baronets. In 1575, Sir Henry Sidney, the English Lord Deputy, visited Connaught to try and persuade the Irish chieftains to surrender their land, swear fealty to the Queen, Elizabeth I, and follow English law. Though such tactics had been going on since Henry VIII, the west of Ireland had largely been able to ignore it all, but no longer. In 1576, Sydney was back, this time in Galway, and he ordered the Mayo chieftains to appear before him. Sydney began to divide and conquer, convincing some minor chieftains to side with the English for more power and money, and thus he weakened the McWilliam. Soon the McWilliam had no choice but to submit, and he agreed to not only follow English law, but also provide men to the English governor and pay £250 per year to the Queen. The McWilliams capitulation. That's a lot of money back then. That's a lot of money, yeah. That's so much. The McWilliams capitulation meant that following English law, his eldest son would be his heir, not whoever was voted in. So 
so Richard Burke was out of the running. Moreover, the English were effectively the ultimate power in Mayo now. The aeolis of the Mayo. Grandyard realised the implications of this and made the decision to do something about it. She decided the best course of action would be to offer an alliance to the English while at the same time demonstrating her power and the might of her fleet. Very much an unspoken threat with a smiling face. In 1577, Sydney was again in Galway, this time to put down a rebellion by the Earl of Clanricard's sons. While he was in Galway, Grania arranged a meeting with Sydney, pledging herself and her fleet, and her husband, but he's down the list, to Sydney to direct as he wished. Sydney was intrigued by Grania, writing that she was a most famous feminine sea captain who was a notorious woman in all the coasts of Ireland. He accepted her offer. Wonderful. Grania had no intention of giving up piracy and pillaging and basically doing what she liked. Only a few weeks after she was hired by the English, Grania took off with her fleet down to Munster in the south, planning to plunder the Earl of Desmond. Bad plan. For the first time that we know of, Grania was caught. She was brought before the Earl, who was himself caught between the demands of the Crown and the wishes of his Irish supporters. The Queen was already suspicious that the Earl was involved in a Catholic plot against her, so the Earl saw Grania as an opportunity to curry favour. He placed Grania under arrest in Limerick Jail. 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 It's very important it's Gail because Hannah was like in the comments of this script, hey, can we compose a limerick on the fly? So I wrote one in 30 seconds and I'm going to read it to you now. There was a brave lady named Grace who liked sailing sea air and free space. Once laid up in Gale, she wished she could sail, but couldn't because the English weren't ace. Beautiful. 30 seconds. That's pretty good. It's very impressive. I tried for about a minute and then I was like, I'm going to leave it and see if we can do it on the fly. <laughs> I'm going to put this on Nicola and it worked. So I'm very happy about this. Yeah, I may have written some more limericks later on as well. Yeah, I, I created a monster. I apologise for that. Grania would have hated Gail, partly because Gail, who likes Gail? It isn't a Gail. No, it's literally Gail. Oh, fuck me sideways. I'm a history teacher. Uh, but also <laughs> because her whole life had been about freedom on land and sea. Freedom not only from physical confinement, but from the confinements of laws and customs. Grania remained in Limerick jail until March 1578 when the Earl handed her over to the English President of Munster, Lord Justice Drury, as proof of his allegiance to the Queen. Drury wrote to Sydney, who was in Dublin, not Sydney, that he had Grania O'Malley, a woman that hath impudently passed the part of womanhood and been a great spoiler and chief commander and director of thieves and murders at sea to spoil this province. What an epitaph. I know. I love it. I want that. After being imprisoned at Limerick for nearly a year and a half, Grania was transferred to prison in Dublin Castle on November 7th, 1578. So obviously these are not good, but there's always a silver lining. The prison at Dublin Gate was reserved for the most important prisoners, so Grania's imprisonment there is actually a sign of her reputation as a woman, famous for her stoutness of courage in person. So surprisingly, since nearly all prisoners in Dublin Castle were executed, Grania was released in 1579. When Grania was transferred to Dublin, it seemed she was in for a drubbing, but they treated her well like a chieftain I tell, and they didn't kill her, which is nice. That's beautiful. Thank I you. feel like the last line needs a bit of work. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's meant to be A-A-B-B-A, but um, I was like, haha, okay. So <laughs> Grania was spared and released in 1579, and then she was almost immediately thrust into fighting again. In March 1579, Grania was besieged at Carragher Castle by a force of soldiers from Galway in retaliation for Grania's attacks on Galway shipping. The soldiers arrived on March 8th and Grania had seen them off by the 26th. On the 18th of July, 1579, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, hereafter known as Fitzfitz, cousin of the Earl of Desmond, sailed into Smerwick near Dingle with 600 Spanish and Italians and the support of the Pope 
to unite all the Irish chieftains in a holy war against the heretic Queen of England, the Protestant Elizabeth I. Another quick side note here, because we haven't covered it yet. Um, I'm ridiculously condensing very complicated concept, so keep that in mind. But this period is peak Protestants versus Catholics. Both believe the other to be the absolute worst, and with English monarchs flip-flopping between each religion each time they die, things are tense. So Mary I, Queen before Lizzie I, had been Catholic. Then she died. Lizzie took over and she was very Protestant. Ireland was, remained Catholic. So, you know, that's going on. If you want more, you can do some research yourself. It's a long history. Very complicated. There's lots of banging things to church doors. Anyway, okay. So Elizabeth I wasn't too bad because she didn't persecute Catholics as much as she could have. Like, gold star for Lizzie here. Um, she mostly insisted on fines for active practice of Catholicism, not just, you know, being charged for being a Catholic um, and not necessarily executions at this point. Upshot of all this is that many Catholics in Europe did not believe in Elizabeth's right to rule England and instead believed that her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, was actually the legitimate ruler. So, in fact, the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, uh, which gave legitimacy to any rebellions against her which came from the Catholics. And so, with the Pope's blessing, Fitzfitz planned to overthrow Elizabeth. That is, until he was shot, and the Earl of Desmond, who'd been doing his damnedest not to make a decision in case he made the wrong one, was now forced to lead a crusade against the English crown. This crusade will be named after him, which is a bit unfair, really. It was called the Second Desmond Rebellion. Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl, appealed to both the McWilliam, as well as Grandier's husband, to bring their forces into the rebellion. Um, though the McWilliam refused, probably because he had firmly entrenched himself in English rule by this point, Richard Burt gathered forces from his own family, as well as from the O'Malley's and the O'Flaherty's and all his New York-based friends who were there for him, um, to march on Galway to fight for Irish independence from English interference. Why are they New York friends? Because they'll be there for him when the rain starts to fall. Oh, God, okay. I shouldn't have asked. No. Things kicked off in February 1580 when the English drove Burke's forces back to Mayo. Burke's supporters deserted him and he was forced back to Clue Bay with only a few followers. So Grania took things into her own hands. She approached Nicholas Mulby, one of the leaders of the English side, with her own men to voluntarily surrender on behalf of Burke's forces. To her, this seemed a far smarter option than fighting on until there was no one left and they were forced to surrender. So essentially live to fight another day. Eventually Burke agreed to surrender himself in person to the English. He negotiated for his right to be considered a chieftain, and the English agreed, considering that the rebellion was gathering force in Munster and the English needed to make sure Burke would not join there. Burke's submission didn't matter for very long, however. By November, the McWilliam had died. Burke was passed over his successor for McWilliam's brother following English law. So Burke and Grania gathered an army. I guess they were together at this point. They're such a Roth and Rachel. Um, <laughs> gathered an army of over 2,000 to enforce his claim to the title. This show of force, combined with the support of other chieftains, meant the English had little choice but to agree that Burke could assume the McWilliamship. In the negotiations, he agreed to follow English law, pay tithe to the English crown, and obey the Queen's representative in Ireland. Burke also agreed to reject any who wished to rebel against the Queen, which was great for Burke because he could force out the Scots, who had helped him, without paying them. You can buy power, but you can't buy class. Again, he's just like Ross. He really is. So things were fairly nice for a few years. Burke inherited a bunch of land and castles as the McWilliam. And apart from a few little squabbles, such as when Burke and Grania refused to pay the rent to the English or when they casually invaded their neighbour, things were relatively peaceful. Until Burke died in April 1583, shockingly from natural causes <laughs> and not being murdered. Grania, having learnt from the death of her first husband, 
quickly decreed her claim to a third of Burke's property. So she was now 53 and still commanded respect and loyalty among her own men. So if, if Burke was like 20, how old was he? 20 or 30 years older than Grania? No, they're about the same age. Oh, for some reason, I've been picturing Richard Burke. <laughs> like, I legitimately have. So I was like, there must be like a 20 or 30 year age gap. Wow, that's no. Bad. I'm a she, she was not Monica. Can <laughs> you blame her? Anyway, in the preceding years, English rule had taken hold in the region. This was helped particularly by the end of the Desmond Rebellion, by um, the close of 1583 with the death of the Earl. There was peace in the country for about five minutes. The underlying tensions and reasons for the Desmond Rebellion had not disappeared with the Earl of Desmond's death. The English still undermined the power and prestige of the Irish chieftains, an issue made worse by the appointment of Sir Richard Bingham as the governor of Connaught in 1584. I would like to rename him uh, Sir Dick Bingham because he's a dick. Bingham did not believe in negotiation and instead believed that the Irish were never tamed with words but with swords. So it was no surprise that the situation in Ireland was a pot ready to boil over. And I wrote another limerick here. You want to hear it? Always. The English were cruel rulers, and the Irish were feeling those bruises. Air was angry too, and under Bingham that grew, and so Grania came out with her jewellers. That's the best one yet. I love it. Mm. So, for Grania, things were getting personal. Bingham had captured her son, Tibbet Long. Tibbet Long was held hostage by Bingham's brother for a year, so he was well treated um, and educated in English laws and customs, but that was an effort to anglicise him and get him on the side of the English. In 1584, Tibbet Long married Maeve O'Connor Sligo, the daughter of a local lord. In 1585, the latest McWilliam died, and Bingham enforced English Lords of Succession, again passing over Edmund Burke. So the Burkes rebelled, alongside their traditional allies, including the O'Malleys, and including Tibbet and Long. Rania's eldest son, Owen O'Flatty, might also have been part of the rebellion. Owen was married to the daughter of Edmund Burke, and so would have had reason to support Burke's claim to the McWilliam ship. But whether or not he was involved, Owen was murdered by the English and he was attacked so brutally that he had 12 wounds that were fatal. Driven by rage and grief, Grania was more determined than ever to support the rebellion against the English. From her current base at Carragher Grania prepared to set sail to recruit Scottish mercenaries to aid the Irish forces. She didn't get very far. Bingham knew very well the power Grania could have over a battle and so sent his brother, Captain John Bingham, who had been involved in Owen's murder, to offer Grania protection. In other words, to capture her. Bingham imprisoned Grania and built a gallows where Grania was sure she would be executed. But again, she was spared. Her son-in-law, Richard Burke, not to be confused with her dead husband, Richard Burke, um, Hannah's written, we'll call the son-in-law by his nickname, The Devil's Hook, but I'm going to call him Dickie Burke. So Dickie Burke... No, no, no. No, 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 no. We have another Dickie Burke. Are you fucking kidding me? Ugh. So you call him The Devil's Hook. All right. That's stupid. The Devil's Hook. That's her son-in-law's name. Pledge to take it's such a weird nickname. I know. It's just like, it's, it's not catchy. I bet he made it up himself. Yeah. yeah. Hey, guys, call me the Devil's Hook. And everyone's like, yeah, all right. The Devil's Hook pledged to take over the custody of Grania, and so she was released into his care. This was likely possible, as until this point, the Devil's Hook had refused to publicly participate in the rebellion. Shock twist, however, as soon as he had custody of Grania, he joined the rebellion openly, and Grania was free to pursue her activities once more. And by activities, we mean murder. Grace set out with her fleet to Ulster to bring in reinforcements. En route, her fleet was damaged in a storm, and she was forced to pull into shore to repair. Repairs took three months. During that time, Grania visited the O'Neill and O'Donnell chieftains of Ulster, telling them of the English actions in Connaught and Munster, and warning that it wouldn't be long until such things were brought to their door. Put a pin in that. Back then in May, the Scottish mercenaries had arrived on their own while Grania's fleet was out of commission. 
Bingham's forces overcame them and the Burke Rebellion surrendered to the English suing for peace. Ranya had no intention of letting things go. Her son had been brutally murdered after all, and the English kept trying to irrevocably change Ireland to suit them, regardless of what the Irish actually felt. Very on brand for the English. Very on brand for the English. In May 1587, Bingham left Ireland and Grania saw an opportunity. She set sail for Dublin with the hopes of appealing to Bingham's rival, Sir John Perrett, the Lord Deputy. Perrett, Perrault was receptive and granted Grania a pardon for all her past offences, as well as a pardon for her sons and daughter. So, you know, he must have really hated Bingham, which I get that. With pardon in hand, Grania set out to increase the size of her fleet and resumed piracy with relish. While Grania was getting back into the swing of piracy, the Spanish Armada was approaching English shores. Fearing that the Irish would unite under Spanish leadership and join the Armada to overthrow Elizabeth I, the current Lord Deputy William Fitzwilliam, oh God, declared it was now illegal and punishable by death to aid the Spanish who were often shipwrecked off the Irish coast. Remember, it was super, super dangerous on the Irish coast. Because you know what you're doing. Any chieftain who was found to harbour Spanish castaways Castaway? I think I was trying to say castanet at the same time. <laughs> Any chieftain who was carbon castanets and put on a performance with them. If I find Carmen Miranda in Ulster, I swear. <laughs> Any chieftain who was found to harbour Spanish castaways forfeited their land to the crown as they were seen as engaging in open rebellion against the Queen. So Bingham returned to Mayo. In 1589, John Brown, the Sheriff of Mayo, was granted the power to enter the territory of the Burks to pursue traitors and to destroy crops and livestock in the process. On the 7th of February, Brown arrived at Grania's base at Carabahalli Castle with a force of 250 men. Grania's grandson, another Richard Burke, see, this is Dickie Burke. Okay, Dickie Grania, Burke. please tell your family they can use another name. Uh, Dickie Burke refused to grant Brown entry. Brown ignored him and marched his men into Burke lands. Bad move for Brown. His force was attacked by the Devil's Hooks family and Brown was killed. This sparked the largest rebellion of Burke's yet. The various Burke clans were joined by the O'Malley's, the Clan Donalds, and the Clan Gibbons. Are you serious? I did not make this up. Oh my god. And the O'Flaxies to overthrow Bingham. Grania was right in among the fray, attacking the nearby English-held Aran Islands and burning all she found, which is where Aran jumpers come from. Her sons, Tibbetnay Long and Edmund, joined the rebels, and the Burke forces fought and plundered their way right to the walls of Galway City to the shock and fear of Fitzwilliam, the Lord Deputy. Fitzwilliam ordered Bingham to call off his forces and called a truce. Again, the issue of the McWilliamship, i.k.a. the clan leadership, was at the front and centre of negotiations. They also wanted Bingham removed as governor of Connaught. Bingham's rivals were happy to agree to this. Elizabeth I herself wrote to Fitzwilliam, encouraging him to appease the rebels and find peace. The Burks charged Bingham with encroaching on their lands, unjustly forcing them to house English soldiers, as well as accusing him of cruelty, torture, and the murder of Grania's son, nephews, and other Burke relations. For their part, the Burks promised to turn over any Spanish castaways and castanets to the English. But this was all just a tactic, and the Burks had no intention of following through. Shocking. <laughs> they had the upper hand, after all. Grania took one of her sons to Scotland, where they hired Scottish mercenaries, and returned to Mayo in early September 1589. The rebellion grew, and the Burks continued to plunder. Elizabeth I ordered that Bingham be put to trial to determine if the charges against him were true, but he was acquitted in Dublin in 1590. He returned to Connaught, determined to end the rebellion. He allied with the earls of Clanricard and Tomond, and marched a thousand men through Mayo, killing, looting, and burning as they went. The rebellion struggled. Again, Grania was at the centre of all. As part of the rebellion, her lands around Carragahalli Castle became key target of Bingham. She and her fleet were able to get away, but her land was razed. Her second son, Murrah, defected and joined with Bingham. 
prompting Grania to take arms against him in ritual. What a bitch! Like I know, um, right? What a dickhead! When you were going through, when you were going through like the meetings of the names, I was like, his name should mean traitor. He's a dick. Nah. So Grace would not let insult against her or her people stand, even if it was coming from her son. By 1591, her loyal sons, <laughs> Edmund and Tibbet Long, were at the top of the Burke hierarchy. And by the next year, Grania and those two sons were the only chieftains who had not yet capitulated to Bingham. That year, in 1592, Tibbet Long was induced to stage an uprising in Mayo, which ultimately failed. That's kind of a running theme of Irish rebellions, I'm not going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. In retaliation, Bingham again attacked Carragahowley, this time also sending warships into Clue Bay and at last uncovering the secrets of the coastline that the O'Malley's had guarded so fiercely and used to such great advantage. From here on, Grania's freedom of movement was forever curtailed. Tibbet Long surrendered to Bingham in September 1592. Under the harsh terms of his surrender, Tibbet Long no longer held power over other families in the wider clan, only his own direct family. He was forced to pay for the soldiers that had come to suppress the rebellion and also to pay back money he had stolen through plunder. This surrender brought with it a tense peace. Grania was now in her 60s. She was widowed twice over, her eldest son had been murdered, her second son had allied with the enemy, her land had been destroyed and she was no longer able to live freely on the open seas. It would have been unsurprising if Grania gave up. But that wouldn't be Grania. Back in Carragahowley, Grania was deciding which road, or ocean road, to take next. <laughs> that road? What do you call an ocean road? Route. Sea route. Tra- that, route. That route, that sea route, yep. that tide, Grania decided, was to write to the Queen of England and plead her case, as you do. Now, this might seem a bit odd, Grania writing to Elizabeth I, who you'd think she would see her as an enemy, but that wasn't how Grania saw it. As we've seen, both the Allies and the enemies of Gaelic chieftains, it was very individual and personal. You had a quarrel with a particular chieftain. You fought with him with the help of your friends. You won or you lost, but you didn't get, hold it against his friends who also fought with him. This individualised society was in part actually a reason why there was no real chance of sustained widespread Irish resistance to English rule at this time, because it was really easy to convince a chieftain to protect his people and forget his neighbours. Well, not easy, but easier. Tell one earl that he'll get all this power if he, like, hands over yeah. He'll do it, yeah. Yeah, if, if you say, I will protect your people if you submit to the English, you'll be like, all right, cool. Um, so Grania had a quarrel with Bingham and the other English you know, lords who she had direct contact with, but she didn't have a quarrel with the country of England as a whole or the English monarch in her mind. Yeah. So Grania wrote to Lizzie I in June 1593 to ask Elizabeth to remove the thorn in her side that was Bingham. Now it was the time for Grania to play the game politically rather than militarily. She opened her first petition to the Queen with an account of her life in an effort to counteract anything negative that Bingham and other English officials had relayed to Elizabeth. Grania appealed to Elizabeth as a woman in a man's world. It's a man's world! (laughs) Citing the lack of protection for widows in Ireland and asking Elizabeth for, essentially, a pension. In exchange, Grania offered to surrender the lands held by her two remaining non-traitorous sons and the two remaining Burke nephews. But her main objective was really to get back on the seas which Bingham had effectively barred her from. So Grania asked Elizabeth to, quote, Grant unto your said subject under your most gracious hand of signet free liberty during her life to invade with sword and fire all your highness's enemies, wheresoever they are or shall be, without any interruption or any person or persons whatsoever. It's just, it's like, not only is she like, can I go back on the sea? She's like, all right, I will, you know, do it for you. But like, can I just have, free reign to do whatever the hell I want with no oversight from anybody 
as long as I say that I'm going to be pursuing your enemies. Yeah. Like, it's not just audacious, it's bodacious. (laughs) You know, like, it's not just, can I get back on the sea? It's, can I get back on the sea with your blessing to do whatever the hell I like? Even though, you know, I've been a thorn in the side of the English for decades. Yeah. So she wanted to be a privateer, basically. Basically, she wanted to be a privateer. Yeah. So if Elizabeth agreed, Grinder could go back to her old life, but this time Bingham wouldn't be able to stop her. So I bet you thought we'd finish with the rebellions and warfare. And obviously, like me in 2015, you don't know your Irish history. While Grania was landlocked and running to the Queen, over in Ulster, things were getting hot again. Hoping for Spanish assistance and fed up with yet more English colonisation, Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, was planning to go to war against the English with the aid of Red Hugh O'Donnell. Like, Red. Hugh O'Donnell. Red Hugh O'Donnell. Red Hugh O'Donnell. He was a communist. O'Neill outwardly professed his loyalty to the crown and had even fought on Bingham's side in Munster. But while fighting in Munster, he saw what had happened when the English invaded, just as Grania had warned him and wanted to avoid the same fate as the English got closer and closer to Ulster. When fighting broke out, Tibbetnay Long was accused of being a rebel, which he was, and was arrested for treason. So Grania knew she had to act as treason was punishable by death. And knowing Bingham and aware that her entire family were definitely not in Bingham's good books, Grania was aware her son was likely to face execution very soon. She decided that writing to the Queen again wouldn't be enough and would probably take too long anyway. So Grania set sail for England, accompanied by her men and captaining her own ship. Though Ireland and England are next door to each other, Grania's route was a long one, since she's on the west coast, so she had to sail down south under Ireland and then under England and then come up the east coast of England to sail up the Thames to London. Grania sailed into English waters in early 1593 and somehow avoided capture by the English warships roaming around hoping to repel the Spanish Armada. Grania arrived at the Elizabethan court, which was currently at Greenwich Palace to avoid the plague, sometime in June or July 1593. Ooh, we're at the anniversary, that's cool. The court, as anyone who has watched a historical drama or the Tudors would know, was a political minefield. Grania had to carefully navigate the laws, customs, expectations and unspoken rules in order to even be granted an audience with Queen Elizabeth I. Few were granted such a privilege, and very rarely were they Irish chieftains, and even fewer were Irish pirate queen chieftain rebels. With another looming Spanish invasion, 1593 was tense in England, and there were many who desired an audience with Elizabeth I. Grania pleaded her case first to Black Tom, well that's problematic, the Earl of Ormond, who was a favourite of the Queen. Black Tom introduced Grania to the Lord Treasurer, who was at this point the most powerful figure in the court after the Queen, basically the Keating to the Queen's Hawk. The Lord Treasurer had a sharp mind and knew of Grania's history, like Keating, and so she needed all her wits and cunning to convince him to let her speak to Elizabeth. He questioned Grania about why she wanted to see the Queen. Grania obviously gave good enough answers. Elizabeth was intrigued and the Lord Treasurer, seeing the situation in Ulster, wanted to keep a powerful chieftain like Grania on the side of the English. So Elizabeth finally granted Grania an audience in July. The two women were strikingly alike. Both were in their 60s. Both had had to fight for their power and the respect of those around them. Both were prone to apparent breaches in their ladylike decorum and both were intelligent, resourceful, charismatic and self-assured. Both could also probably be played by Kate Blanchett. This meeting has become the stuff of legends and is recorded in Irish folklore as the meeting of two queens. There are many stories about what transpired in the room, but what really happened is unclear. The conversation between them was likely in Latin, the easiest common language for them both. Based on later letters about the meeting from both women, it seems Grania was a persuasive petitioner and a canny one too. Grania admitted to only one illegal action on her part and instead focused on the crimes and atrocities of Bingham. Elizabeth found Grania compelling, listening attentively to her case. 
Again, Grania requested that the Queen dismiss Bingham and asked Elizabeth to order her son's release from prison. Again, Grania asked that she be allowed to return to a seafaring life, implying that if Elizabeth permitted her to do so, Grania would aid the Crown in battle against external forces, like the Spanish. An added, small, minor, and mostly inconsequential side benefit, Grania suggested, was that seafaring would allow her to provide for herself in old age. But that's really beside the point. Her case made, the meeting was over. Elizabeth promised to investigate Grania's claims and make a decision. Grania waited in the English court for a decision from Elizabeth for another two months, all the time worrying that her son might be executed at any moment. In September, Grania finally got her reply. Though Bingham had written to declare his innocence, incensed that the Queen would even consider the possibility of backing Grania, Grania had succeeded. The Queen wrote to Bingham, ordered him to release Tibbet Long. Elizabeth was also moved by Grania's situation as a widow without any official rights to land or a livelihood, and ordered that Grania should be supported by the taxes from her son's estates. Finally, Elizabeth told Bingham to get over himself. Well, I hope that was in there. But she did tell him to live and let live, ordering him to leave Grania alone to live in peace. I really like to imagine Bingham, like, apoplectic with rage and Elizabeth's letter, storming around his mansion, ranting angrily about bloody women. Because you just, you just know he was a raging misogynist, like even more so than most of his period. His eye-bulging outrage wouldn't have been helped by Elizabeth's closing remarks that Grenier had departed with great thankfulness and with many earnest promises that she will, as long as she lives, continue a dutiful subject. Grenier had done what no Irish woman had done before. She'd held power on her own terms and fought to protect it. Her status as a powerful leader in Ireland was cemented in print a few years later when a new map of Ireland was published that listed Irish chieftains. Grania was the only woman included on that list. Though recognised in cartography, Grania still had to deal with challenges to her position. Bingham, like a bad penny and a whiny dingbat, took as long as he possibly could to enact Elizabeth's decrees. He probably took even longer to enact Elizabeth's decrees because Grania delivered the letter to his hands <laughs> Which again, it just brings me great joy to see. I just, I don't like him if you haven't gathered yeah. by now. Anyway, he really should have known that what Grania wanted, Grania got. She threatened to go back to England if he did not release her son, though he finally did it in November 1593. So Grania had her son and she was back on the seas, this time with the backing of the Queen of England who had effectively given Grania a license to engage in whatever acts of piracy she wanted under the terms of maintenance and fighting for the Queen. That's amazing. Grania set about rebuilding her fleet and soon commanded three large galleys which could hold 300 men each. Bingham did not like what he was seeing and spent his time trying to figure out how to stop Grania becoming a pirate again while still obeying the Queen. You know that gif of the guy um, where he's like got the pin board with all the like the strings in between each thing and he's trying to figure it out that is what I imagine Bingham doing at this point like he's just obsessed I feel and he's just wandering around his mansion muttering all the time about how to bring race down and all all his friends are like uh sir what are you what are you doing like all his servants are like sir maybe you should think about ruling and he's like no 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 I must get Grania I must get her. In 1594, he made his move, ordering a troop of soldiers to accompany Grania's fleet while at sea. Worse, Bingham ordered Grania and Tippetnay Long to attack Irish rebels who had taken refuge on nearby islands as part of their oath to fight for the Queen's interests. These rebels were the remaining members of her grandson's army, including her grandson himself. If this wasn't enough, Bingham had one more move. He ordered a detachment of soldiers to be stationed on Grania's lands, forcing her to feed and supply them, thus eating into her own resources. Grania and her followers were unable to feed themselves in such conditions, and so left Mayo for Munster, sailing out of Clue Bay. 
Branya again wrote to Elizabeth and even visited England again sometime in May 1595 to plead her case to the Queen. Again, Branya asked that Bingham be ordered to back off his crusade against her and her family. The Queen was again impressed by Branya's determination and instigated a commission to investigate Branya's son's lands in Mayo with the aim of offering them the surrender and regrant terms that would enforce their claim on the land, but also make them officially loyal to England. Luckily for Grania, Bingham was not long in the position of governor after this. His own terrible personality took care of her problem. <laughs> when his colleagues decided enough was enough, they planned to remove him, and fearing that he would be charged for something, Bingham fled to England, where he was immediately arrested. At 65, Grace was finally free of the scourge of Bingham and could return happily to piracy. Around her, the Tyrone Rebellion raged on and internal divisions continued to plague Grania's family. Her son got kidnapped again and then ended up leading Irish forces for the English. But we're not going to go into that because um, everything happens so much in Irish history. We'd be for here forever if we went into that and Hannah did need to sleep at some point. Tibbernay Long ended up profiting massively from aiding the English and was soon the largest landover in Mayo. Grania therefore also profited. This might seem like a betrayal of her ideals, yet Grania never shied away from the fact that she was out for her own interests and her own interests alone. Contrary to how things developed in later centuries, nationalism and Irish patriotism were not key driving forces in 16th century Ireland. Remember, there was all this internal division between all the different clans, and that's why the English had such an easy time in some places taking over. So we don't know exactly when Grania died. From remaining records, it seems that she did eventually retire from active piracy in her 70s. <laughs> and instead directed things from her base at Carragahalli Castle. So this is where she likely died around 1603. In another mirror, this was the same year that Elizabeth I died and the year that the Tyrone Rebellion ended, which essentially was the final death knell of Irish independence from English rule and sort of the end of this way of life ruled by Gaelic Braham Law. For a long time, Grania was absent from the historical record, but she was remembered in folklore as a hero of Irish independence. She appears in various songs and ballads, particularly songs popular among revolutionaries and rebels. The Irish Rebellion song, which is called Oroche de Vahawalia, sung by was sung by Irish revolutionaries at the East Uprising, and it references Grace O'Malley and a thousand warriors announcing ruin on the English. The image and her legacy are probably best summed up by the song Grania Wales from around the 1790s, recorded in connection to men from Mayo who fought in the Battle of Bellinamook as part of the 1798 Irish Rebellion against British rule. In this song, Grania defends her castle against English forces so that the flag of Grace O'Malley waved defiant, proud and free, and no warlike chief or Viking ever had bolder heart than she. Yay! I'm pretty sure that 98 Irish Rebellion was in part inspired by the French Revolution as well. It might have, I think it was supported by French troops. It was supported by French troops, yeah. yeah. So this particular battle was actually the final battle of the French kind of aiding the Irish in mm. the rebellion. So the French were like pretty much ousted in this battle. Yeah. So, the so enemy, my enemy is my friend and their enemy was, was England. <laughs> the French are very good at aiding anybody who doesn't like the English. Yeah, that's totally fair. And the British were pretty good at aiding anyone who didn't like the French. So, yeah, yeah. you know, parallels there. That's pretty much the end of, you know, Grania Grace O'Malley. Um, such a... I did not expect this to have so much in it when I first started researching it. I was like, yeah, she'll be like a ship, you know, on a ship. She'll do some pirating. She'll be involved in like some sort of rebellion. And then it was like, oh, my God, it keeps happening. You, it keeps, Irish history it keeps. is always, it's like, um, 
It's like a, something that's been dehydrated and you're like, this is small, this is fun. You put it in water and it explodes and you're like, ah, yes, ah, oh dear. Like there is just so much and I had to cut out so much. Um, so I recommend if you want to know more about Grania, read Anne Chambers' biography because it's excellent and it covers a lot more of the context than we had time to do here and all the family trees and all the Burks and all the O'Malley's and everybody and how they're related and what's going on in all the different parts of Ireland. Um, but yeah, I love Grace. I, I, I love, I love Grania so much. I would like to marry her. Uh, she is now my hero. I just, she just kept going. I love this idea. I do love women who are out for themselves in a way. She's similar to Roberta Cow. Like this idea of, she's yeah. like, Hey, I want freedom. Fuck everybody else. I do like that. Way. So I she also I, kind of reminds me of like, um, Molly Brand. Yeah. Because like, it's sort of like you're in a shitty situation. The English are there being shitty. And so it's like, how can you take care of yourself and the people you care about? Yeah, exactly. You're not trying to change the world. You're not trying to like, you're not trying to fix things. You're just like, I got to take care of me and mine. And that's my biggest thing. That's all I care about. And that's valid. And there's nothing like wrong with that either. No. Like it doesn't fit in with like these later patriotic ideals necessarily. But it's totally valid, especially at this time when it's not really a united Ireland we're talking about. No, it's not. It's like, oh, I'm not going to go there. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you got to remember a lot of countries in Europe at this time, and I'm including Ireland in this case, they're not united countries. It's like France. It's only like the 1800s, really, like mid-1800s, that yeah. the idea of like a national identity for each country, um, I did country with air quotes because you couldn't see, but yeah. like this nationalism is becoming a thing. Yeah, the nation state doesn't really emerge until after the French Revolution when you get yeah. the idea of French citizenship. And then, of course, Napoleon, and everyone's like, hang <laughs> on a minute, we like our individual national identity. We've got to protect it. Waterloo. I was defeated. My last question to you is who okay. would you cast as Grace O'Malley in a movie? Ooh, I have been thinking of this because I would love a movie of Grace. Like, can you imagine this movie? It would be epic. There is a movie I Googled yeah. that seems to have been in production since 2013. So it's not been. And is yeah. maybe coming out. I don't know. But I would love a big budget movie. And I was trying to figure it out. And I like Googled like Irish actresses. And I don't know. The lady who plays Claire in Outlander is Irish. I was Irish. thinking of her, Katrina Balf. Yeah, Katrina Balf. And she's a really good actress. And she's like the right age, like, I could totally see Hollywood making Grace really young and hot. Like, if you look at, like, some of the modern art depictions of Grace. She's, she's got, like, like her titties out, like Anne Bonny and that. Yeah. yeah, and it's, like, very, like, red hair, young, conventionally attractive now. And whereas, like, Katrina Balfour's, like, she's in her 40s and stuff. And so I feel like she would be a good person to play Grace as, like, obviously Katrina Balfour's also stunner love it also the but, funny thing is she looks a lot like Kate Blanchett so you get Kate Blanchett to yeah. her role as Elizabeth and you've just got this weird meeting of the minds I like that and idea. like that would mirror the parallels between them so that's that's who I would cast uh Katrina Balfe's agent if you're listening hit me up give me a lot of money and I'll somehow make this a movie I know who I would cast and I'm going even older than you let me just check her name again because I'm picturing you do like here's what I would do for a movie I do like three parts mm-hmm. of it and, like, so the first part about her as, like, a young woman and then, like, a young girl then, like, as a younger woman and then as, like, an yep. older woman, like, maybe negotiating. And I would actually cast Devla Kawan. Kawan as her. Oh, yeah, her. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, she'd be She's amazing. She's from yep. Dublin. 
Um, and she's very cool. She played a Sumter Fitzgerald in Ballycus Angel. We need more older women as well. Like yeah. that's I don't if I if they did a movie, I don't want it to be like a young Grace the entire time. Yeah, young, like like you can have maybe, a young one for a while because let her have up. wrinkles. But yeah, when she gets old, like a lot of the stuff she does is when she's in her fifties, sixties. So yeah, like, let her that. have wrinkles. Let her have gray hair. Yeah, let's stop fan casting this movie. <laughs> okay, out of this blanket. <laughs> And on that, let's get out of the blanket. We have a newsletter you can sign up for on the website. And um, we have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and I wrote a little limerick. Would you like to hear it, Hannah? I would love to hear a final limerick. All Tell right. me. <clears throat> There's something we'd ask you to do. Let's leave us an Apple review. Five stars would be great. More can find us with that rate. And we love feedback. That is true. That is true. I like it. We, we do love feedback. Too. We love praise. We will accept ambivalent feedback. But praise is better. And praise makes mayo. All right, I'm done for the day. Thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.